obstruction of justice, abuse of power, unconstitutional emoluments, attacks on the freedom of the press. If you follow the news ever since Donald Trump took office nearly two years ago, you've heard these phrases from the president's critics over and over. But one member of Congress, Steve Cohen of Memphis, Tennessee, tried to do something about it. He introduced a resolution last year, resolution number 621 to be precise, to impeach President Trump over each and every one of these matters. It didn't go anywhere, of course. Cohen and his 17 co-sponsors were all Democrats who had zero power in the 115th Congress. But all that is about to change in January when the Democrats take back control of the House. Will Cohen, a member of the House Judiciary Committee, try again? And if he does, how much support will he get? We'll talk to Congressman Cohen and explore what will be happening on that critical judiciary panel on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes no is a ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, Danny, ever since the election, uh, it looks like the Democrats in the House have been chomping at the bit to get back control of those gavels, convene hearings, and begin investigating uh, the Trump administration. And uh, they just got some new rich material to work with this week. The disclosure that uh, Ivanka Trump has been using her personal email for government business. How rich is that in light of uh, everything that took place during the 2016 election and the chance of lock her up about Hillary Clinton's uh, private email server? Yeah, well, I'll get to that in a second. But first of all, just on all these Democratic investigations, I think their real challenge is going to be like how to prioritize and how not to step on each other's messages because there's just so many avenues of inquiry here, so many uh, rich veins to mine, that'll be the challenge. But uh, on the emails, they're not going to be able to resist uh, because of the irony that you you mentioned. And, you know, uh, the question obviously will be, did she, we don't know yet what the content of those emails were, how much of it was official business versus just talking about, you know, the, the grandchildren. But the likely, you know, she's a senior advisor to President Trump and the likelihood that she was not talking about official business seems pretty slim to me. And, you know, the question is going to be, how could she, after the 2016 election, when the emails was a huge part of Donald Mm -hmm. Trump's anti-Hillary message, you know, it was about those emails, uh, how could she have not known (laughs) that she couldn't do that? I mean, it's just kind of astonishing. Yeah, I love the tweet from our friend uh, Matt Miller, 
who said, look, uh, he, he wasn't really terribly bothered if she used uh, uh, her personal email for some government business from time to time. But anybody who would do that after the events of 2016 is criminally stupid. You know, it certainly does raise questions about the judgment of the uh, president's daughter and uh, her husband, Jared, both senior White House officials. I will um, be, so, yes, I will be yeah. shocked if you don't see when Ivanka Trump is, you know, out there somewhere in the public, chance of lock her up, right. liberal activists taunting her with the same language that Republicans use for Hillary Clinton. That is going to happen, I guarantee it. The question we want to pose to our first guest, Congressman Steve Cohen, is how far does this go? Uh, you know, does this add to the material that could somehow be used to uh, bring impeachment proceedings uh, against the president? It'll be really interesting to see what he has to say, since he was so out front in the impeachment cause last year when yeah. he was in the minority. And the question is, are the Democrats going to be using all of this stuff to kind of really hit investigative pay dirt, or are they going to be just using it politically to rough up Trump and to help their chances in 2020? And maybe it'll be some of both. Right. And of course, we also have the battle upcoming about uh, who's going to be the speaker. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is uh, facing a challenge from, uh, it looks like, Marsha Fudge from Ohio. So uh, we'll want to talk to Cohen about that. And then we've got Elise Jordan, coming on to talk about uh, what's going on in Mississippi. I gather she's been down there for um, some uh, focus groups She's she's Well, she did focus groups all over the country, actually, before the midterms, right in the, in the run-up to the midterms. And she's from Mississippi, so she's going to have a feel for that runoff election that's taking place down there, which I think is the last Senate race that is uh, really still in play. You know, unlikely that Mike Espy, the Democrat, will win, but he's pretty close, uh, too close for comfort you know, in a red state like that. So so that'll be interesting. And of course, Elise Jordan um, is a former State Department uh, official, is uh, a Republican who's been very critical of Donald Trump. Um, and I think we'll have a lot of interesting things to say. So, hey, one last uh, item I think we should mention, uh, you know, obviously our uh, episode from last week with George Conway speaking out for the first time about uh, his uh, feelings about the Trump administration and the Republican Party having become a personality cult under Donald Trump got a lot of attention. But one part of that episode that was, uh, you know, the back end that didn't get much attention but is really worth listening to are his uh, uh, his his comments about his role in the uh, events that led to the last impeachment of a president, Bill Clinton, about how he felt very strongly about the uh, sexual harassment allegations against Bill Clinton in the uh, Paula Jones case and um, how uh, enraged he was by the president trying to effectively cover it up by claiming presidential immunity in the lawsuit that Paula Jones brought. That's what got George Conway involved to begin writing legal briefs in that lawsuit and put him right at the center. And um, which ultimately led him to become your source uh, yes, for uh, the Star investigation and outing himself as your source quite proudly, actually, on the show. And I, this is the last thing I want to say about this, which is that, you know, in this era of hyper-partisanship and polarization, I think it is worth noting that there is a consistency in his 
kind of legal activism and going after presidents because, you know, that was 20 years ago when he was going after uh, Bill Clinton for obviously he was outraged by his personal conduct. But really, that was about Clinton's subversion of the rule of law, lying under oath, claiming immunity, essentially claiming that he was above the law. 20 years later, uh, in a very different context, he's attacking Donald Trump for really, you know, sort of the same those same principles, um, right. obstruction of justice, uh, attacking uh, the Justice Department, you know, fundamentally betraying our basic constitutional values, which I think he holds uh, dear. And, and I think um, that there's consistency there. I think it's worth pointing out. It's good to see that some people in Washington still uh, feel strongly about constitutional principles, regardless of uh, which side is uh, is, is violating. I just like saying right. constitutional principles because it makes me okay. sound high-minded. Yeah, because you are a principled guy. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, let's get on with the show. We now have with us the Honorable Representative Stephen Cohen of Tennessee, a member of the House Judiciary Committee, soon to be in the majority. Steve Cohen, welcome to Skullduggery. Nice to be with you. I uh, I passed a law when I was a state senator, and I called it the Anti-Skullduggery Act of Tennessee. <laughs> you did? Wait a second. I that think you means... need to pass a pro-skullduggery act now, <laughs> just with a little different intent. We what? have pro-skullduggery uh, actions without the blessings or the benefit of legislation. <laughs> you know, a lot I want to talk to you about, but what was the Anti-Skullduggery Act? It was a situation we had that I cured that set up an incumbent legislator or politician withdrew from office on the last day or during the filing deadline, leaving only the people withdrew on the last day for filing or during the withdrawal deadline, that the filing period was extended for a week. And what had happened is some people had announced they were going to run for re-election. Uh, it happened twice, I think, in the, in the previous history. And, and then they withdrew at the last minute, and their favorite surrogate who they wanted to succeed them filed a petition and they got the office because nobody challenged them and nobody thought the incumbent was going to uh, not run and so this prohibited that a action of skullduggery from occurring and uh, opened up the filing deadline to others and made the person who would do such a thing be a, a scourge and likely loser and so nobody's done that since so that's the anti-skullduggery act well, what this shows is that you can actually pass legislation and um, leads us right into the first thing uh, I want to talk about. First of all, how does it feel to be about to be part of the majority in the House of Representatives? Well, to, to quote Steve Winwood, it's, we'll be back in the high life again. <laughs> right. um, yeah. I was in the majority the first four years I served in Congress, 2006. And it was great being the majority. We passed the Affordable Care Act. We raised the minimum wage. We passed the Lilly Ledbetter Law. We did a lot. We passed in the House cap and trade. It was gratifying to be a part of a group that was trying to change America and move us into the 21st century in the right way. And then we had the next eight years we've been in the minority. Now, it wasn't as awful when we had President Obama to work with and get some things done. But for the last two years, it's been the pits of hell with the presidency of a, a basically a black hole in the White House and a Senate majority leader who was the most Machiavellian of all, a House speaker without a spine. 
It's right. been a uh, unusual cast of characters, and we've been at, uh, well, without any. Well, we're going to ask you soon about what you're going to do with uh, what Democrats are going to do with their newfound power. But let's start with some skullduggery, alleged skullduggery that's in the news right now. Mike and I wanted to ask you about the revelation that uh, Ivanka Trump, irony of ironies, has been apparently was using her personal email you know, when she was in the White House, potentially for official business. We don't know yet, but uh, what's your reaction to that? It's a wonderful irony. We, need, we definitely need to look into it, see her emails, and see what she was doing with those emails. And then she's, I guess we ought to lock her up. <laughs> lock her up and then investigate, right? <laughs> but uh, that, don't that delay. seems to be yeah. the course of the Trump presidency when you use a, a personal email. A year ago this month, you introduced House Resolution 621 to impeach Donald J. Trump for high crimes and misdemeanors, and you misdemeanors, and you spelled them out: obstruction of justice, uh, unconstitutional em- emoluments, abuse of power, tax on the freedom of the press. What you got? And seventeen co-judiciary and attacks on the judiciary and attacks on the judiciary. Don't want to forget that. Okay. You are about to be in the majority, a member of the House Judiciary Committee, which is the panel that initiates impeachment proceedings. Will you be reintroducing your resolution in the new Congress? And how hard are you going to push to make this happen? I suspect what we'll do is have hearings on the improprieties of the president and his administration, and we'll try to get, and hopefully we'll receive, the Mueller report, which hopefully will be manifest in its a disclosure of uh, improper, illegal, unconstitutional acts of the president. I suspect it will, but we need to see it, and there's an issue whether we see it or not. I think we need to wait and get those hearings held, those questions that we want to ask about emoluments and about obstruction of justice and abuse of power answered, and we want to see Mueller's report where many of the answers are. Just to be clear, you are not going to introduce this resolution right off the bat when Congress uh, begins in January. You're going to wait, hold hearings on these matters first, and then decide whether you're going to reintroduce this? Yes, exactly. We have the power and the majority to hold hearings, to get those answers, hopefully to see the Mueller report, which will be finished. You know, impeachment is a political issue. It's not necessarily legal. It's political. And... You need the Senate to confirm with a two-thirds vote. The Senate is a, not a very good jury on this. There are very few senators who show much of a spine about anything that Donald Trump has done or said. And the few people that have talked well, the old chorus line, um, the dance 10 looks three, they talk 10 and they act vote two or one. The Bob Corkers and the Jeff Flakes and the Ben Sasses. And the Susan well, they're Collins, all gone in be, the new Senate. There'll just be two of them left. Susan Collins had been sass, and they were the, the least of the talkers. Corker and Flake were the best talkers, but uh, didn't do much. Flake looks like he might be doing something here at the end. But they're just two, and they've got 50, they have 52 or 53 votes. It's unlikely to get any of these people off dead center. And I think they, most of them fall in the class of um, shoot somebody on, in, in New York on Fifth Avenue or Times Square, wherever Trump wants to shoot them. He could have multiple shootings, I guess. And, and they wouldn't convict him. They wouldn't even question it. They'd find a reason to say it was the right thing to do. And So you've got to convince the Senate. And I think hearings in the Mueller report might soften some of them up or convince them to where at least there's a shot at a trial. And if that comes out, then you proceed further. But I think you've got to try to get a jury pool 
You know, that's in essence we're bored diring the jury with our with our issues. We could get the probably get the votes eventually to, to impeach on the committee, which is the more liberal committee in, of Democrats in, in the House, the Judiciary Committee, and probably get them on the floor. Although some people in the tougher districts might have trouble voting for it. But you just need a majority, but you need two-thirds in the Senate, and that's where the Republicans exist, so it's a political issue. Congressman, I, I want to get into some of the specifics in your proposed articles of impeachment. But before that, I want to ask you kind of a more of a philosophical question, because there's been this debate among Democrats about what the strategy ought to be in terms of investigations. And there's some who warn that Democrats could overplay their hand that in the way that Republicans did on, say, Benghazi. Others say, well, that's not a good analogy because Trump really has done all these terrible things. And so that, that there really isn't that risk. But, you know, we interviewed or Yahoo News interviewed Henry Waxman, who was no slouch when it came to congressional investigations, having run the Government Oversight Committee for a long time and been pretty successful. His advice was don't personalize these investigations. Don't make them about Trump. In some ways, focus less on the, the, you know, the scandals and more on policy, things like environmental regulations or health care or whatever else. Where do you fall on that continuum in, in, in terms of that debate? Well, I think Henry is, a, is right. And, and when I came into Congress, there was Henry Waxman, there was Howard Berman, and there was George Miller. And I often referred to them as the three wise men. They were from California, and they, they were all veteran congressman. I think they all were part of the Watergate class. I know Henry, Henry was, and he George was, yeah, was. For I sure, think yeah. Howard was as well. Henry's probably right. You don't want to personally, because Trump has, with his base, a tremendous following and passionate following. But the issues themselves are important to people. Health care is important to people, even if they like Trump, and that's the only way to wean them away is to show things he's done that may be harming their own health care or their own income their own opportunities. But but so much of what he's done, you know, people don't understand, I think, the Emoluments Clause and the continually, what I think is a criminal enterprise by the Trump family to enrich themselves. And that may be what Ivanka was putting on her personal emails, were things dealing with her business or things to do with emailing people that were related to her business about government affairs. Who knows? But they don't miss a beat when it comes to increasing their bottom line. Michelle Obama said it well, Barack was putting the country first, and Donald Trump puts himself first all the time and his family. And that's yeah, where the Emoluments Clause comes in. But I want to take you back to what you were telling us before, that you're not going to be reintroducing the resolution that you introduced last year for impeachment, which sounds to me like you're backing away from where you were. Everything you said about the Senate was true a year ago when you uh, when you popped this uh, resolution, and then you didn't have any power. Now you're about to have power, and you're stepping back from where you were a year ago. Are you being pressured by Pelosi and the Democratic leaders to uh, back off? No, there's a big difference, Michael, in being the majority and the minority. The minority, you basically can message because you can't pass a thing. And Bob Goodlatte, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, wouldn't even have hearings on any of these issues. So the only way to bring them to the fore was to have an impeachment resolution and to try to present to the public the illegal activities that you felt the president had committed. And I still feel he has. There's no question about it. But I worked my Democratic colleagues very, 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 very hard. Many occasions, many days, I went to different people, and I thought I'd have them, and I'd talk to them, and I'd try to work them, and I'd try to get them on my resolution. And we got a total of 17 co-sponsors, 17. That's a far away from 
what you need to pass a, a resolution. People were not willing to sign on. So I guess in a way I made my point. I still believe it. He has committed impeachable offenses. I worked it hard. I got my 17 co-sponsors, two of whom are leaving the House, and so we're down to 15 returnees. Unless you see more proof, you're not going to get more sponsors, even on the Democratic side. And that's the only thing you can do in the minority is to state your position. In the majority, you can have hearings, and you can elicit evidence, and you can elicit responses, which can change the public's attitudes toward Trump and his actions. In the minority, all you can do is introduce an act or introduce a resolution. You can't have hearings. You can't have bills. You can't. By the way, I noticed that one of those co-sponsors was Marsha Fudge, who's going to challenge or says she's going to challenge Pelosi to be speaker. Just on that alone, are you going to are you going to support Fudge over Pelosi? Nancy Pelosi is the right person to be speaker of the House. I definitely support her. I've said for years that uh, while I support President Obama. It should have been called Pelosi Care, and I even printed up buttons, which I gave away with Nancy's picture called Pelosi Care. She passed the Affordable Care Act. She's the most effective House leader that we've had since at least Sam Rayburn and maybe before. She's gotten a lot done. She keeps the caucus together. She's got a hard worker, has a great ability to rally support for issues, stay focused on issues. We need that leader right now. We have McConnell in the Senate. We have Trump in the presidency. We have one person to go to the table for the Democrats. You need your strongest leader, your best tactician, your experienced person who's been there and who won't. She will not back down, and she cares about the issues that the Democrats care about, and that's health. Is she going to make it? Will she be the uh, Speaker of the House? I certainly hope so. I'm not Nostradamus, but I certainly hope so. And if she doesn't, it's going to be chaos for the Democrats will look terrible on that first day of voting. If she's not the speaker, we're going to have a leader who's never been tested, and Donald Trump will bludgeon them. You sound like a very effective campaign manager for her re-election uh, to be leader. Are you, um, what are you doing to help her get re-elected? Well, I've written a letter on behalf of her that I support Pelosi and the reasons why I do, and I carry that message uh, forth. Uh, she's, she really is an amazing woman. I've been in politics for almost 40 years in office, elected legislative office, I've been around the longest-serving state Senate leader in the history of this country, I think, and John Wilder in Tennessee, who served as Speaker of the Senate for 30 years or so. It's around Ned McWhorter, who's the Speaker of the House and is considered the grand master of, of Tennessee House politics. Neither one of them are Nancy Pelosi. Congressman, I want to get back to your um, your articles of impeachment for a second, because they seem to kind of divide into two buckets. There's the those articles of impeachment which get at Trump's subversion of, of the rule of law, whether it's obstruction of justice or uh, going after the judiciary or a free press. And then there's the ones that seem to be more related to corruption, whether he's using his office to enrich himself. And you alluded before to emoluments. Do you think that... Is there a sense in which the the corruption piece of it actually will resonate more with the American public? Because it was kind of striking when you saw some of these uh, exit polls and surveys after the election that, like, the Russia scandal didn't seem to move the needle much for voters. Well, it should. I haven't looked at those polls. Some people think all's fair in love and war in politics. If you collude with the Russians changing the election, that should make a difference. It's illegal and it's wrong. You can't take foreign contributions, and that would certainly be a contribution. I think the problem is the president has gone so many times and called it a witch hunt and said, there is no collusion, there is no collusion. The lady doth protest too much. And 
he keeps saying it, but it works. It's the Roy Cohn theory that he lives. He is Roy Cohn incarnate, which is an awful thing to say about anybody, but that's what he is. And he keeps saying it, and people think, well, he didn't really do it. The Russians might have done something, but it wasn't in collusion with Trump, and it wasn't Donald Jr. He was just a son who was trying to help his father, and they didn't, they didn't get anything. And, you know, the Mueller report, I think, will show that there was direct contact between the Trump campaign and the Russians, whether it was Roger Stone, whether it was uh, whoever it was, Donald Jr. and the lady in New York at the Trump Tower, et cetera. They're going to show there's direct collusion. I suspect that uh, the Korn Isikoff books pretty much shows it, too. <laughs> well, it's called Russian Roulette, uh, which you should always remind your listeners of, and available on Amazon at your and at your local bookstore. All right, so Colin, the uh, bomb thrower in the minority is now sounding like the uh, statesman in the uh, uh, soon to be in the majority. But you are on the House Judiciary. By the way, I notice you're ranking minority member of the uh, Constitution Subcommittee of Judiciary, uh, uh, Constitution and Civil Justice. Will you be the uh, chair of that subcommittee when the new Congress takes office? I suspect I will if things play out as they have over the many, many years of Congress. But if there is a, a change in the leadership, you don't know if there'll be a change in the rules. I mean, the way we divvy up chairmanships and subcommittee chairmanships is by seniority on your committee. That would, as things look now to where I would be the chair of the subcommittee on civil rights and constitution, if somebody else becomes speaker, they could change the caucus rules and you could end up having uh, votes of the committee or votes of the policy steering committee or whatever. Let's talk about your likely agenda on that very critical, uh, you know, you'll be the chair of a very critical subcommittee on judiciary. What's right off the bat for you? Are you going to delve into Matt Whitaker and what he's doing as acting attorney general? Are you going to get right to um, hearings on some of the matters you brought up uh, in the impeachment resolution, emoluments, or give me your, uh, you know, top three or four items that you will pursue when you're uh, in the majority in in January? Well, Chairman Nadler will take quite a few issues, I suspect, to the full committee, and he's a former chair of Constitution and Civil uh, Rights, so he, he loves those issues as much as I do. Uh, how much he leaves in the subcommittee and how much he takes to the full committee will be for him to determine. I think he has stated that he wants the first day to be Whitaker and issues concerning Bob Mueller, and I've had a resolution to protect Bob Mueller for over a year, which I had with John Conyers and Walter Jones, and then when John Conyers left, I took over with Walter Jones. We tried to get it to the House floor through a discharge petition and got 185 people on it, all Democrats plus Walter Jones, uh, but couldn't go any further than that. And I suspect he'll take that up, and that's an important issue because Bob Mueller has a a key to preserving our democracy and showing whether it's been... uh, interfered with by the Russians in in an illegal and uh, corrupt way with the Trump administration. My committee, I suspect the first thing we'll do is voting rights, which is a bedrock of our democracy. And I would like to have hearings on voting rights and voting suppression and possibly have Stacey Abrams as my first witness and talk about Georgia and what went on in Georgia and what improvements are needed because uh, Secretary Governor to be Kemp certainly used every skullduggery that he could to bring about his eventual victory by disenfranchising, eliminating voters from the voting rolls, 
changing voting precincts. Do you view that as a stolen election? Well, that's Sherrod Brown's language, and Sherrod Brown is a great guy. I think the world of him, and I certainly would think he'd be a great president. But uh, it was a, a skullduggery election, if not a stolen election. I was I was <laughs> struck by your uh, the article that I think is titled "Undermining a Free Press." I'm wondering how you would pursue that. And you know, since you drew up these articles of impeachment, we had the whole hubbub over uh, Jim Acosta from CNN and his hard pass White House uh, credentials being taken away from him now restored, but, you know, still a legal fight. Will you look into to that whole issue? Even when you're in the minority, you can't have briefings. And we had a briefing on the free press and had a very distinguished panel. We will do things like that in our committee for sure. We'll have a hearing on the press and what happened. And You think you might call Jim Acosta? Well, that's a good thought. We might call him, but I think the last time we had, um, what's the wonderful lady from the Washington Post that's uh, Reuben? Miss Reuben was one of the panelists. Oh, yeah. And she was outstanding. But that's interesting. So your agenda would be first voting rights and um, freedom of the press. The, the Mueller resolution strikes me you could probably get that passed pretty quickly, I would think, right now. Well, voting rights, freedom of the press, and emoluments. Emoluments comes strictly under the Constitution, and I think that will be a major issue as well. One more on the on the Mueller investigation. A key question that's out there is Mueller's going to file a report at some point, but will the public ever get a chance to see it? It's entirely at the discretion of, I guess it will be Matt Whitaker now, as to whether that report gets released. The White House is likely to invoke privilege issues about it. What's your view? Will you move to subpoena a Mueller report once it gets filed so you and the rest of the country could see it? I'm sure that that will occur, and I'm sure we'll try to get it, and I'm sure they'll bring up executive privilege. I I think there was a program about three weeks ago or so where uh, Newt Gingrich said, that'll happen and all these hearings and, 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 and subpoenas and they'll exert executive privilege and we'll see whether it was Whitaker fight was worth it. Basically saying, yeah, we've got five on the Supreme Court. The issues aren't going to be dealt with uh, necessarily legally, but it'll be partisan. And we got our fifth partisan on there and we've got our Bryce Harper on there. And then that's what Kavanaugh will be for them in terms of executive privilege and, and, and Trump life. So uh, I think that's what we're going to have to deal with. Sounds like it could be, this could be a a tough slog to try to get access to that report. Everybody says that Mueller is a chess player and a master chess player and everybody else is playing checkers. I hope that's true and I hope all these sealed indictments are indictments of Donald Jr. and Kushner and others and he foresaw this happening. The investigation has gone on so long he has to have thought about having it shut down and having a thumb put on him and one way to get around that would be to file sealed indictments. And another way might be to have almost a report continually being addressed and then annotated as time goes on and have it filed with the court as well. The grand jury through Judge Sirica is how the Watergate report was eventually outed. And Mueller knew about that. And I hope that Mueller had some thoughts and things like a Richard Benvenisti and gets that into the grand jury and doesn't have to deal with Whitaker. Whitaker could find and Trump could find that they've been done in 
and I think Mueller hopefully will have done that. Uh, yeah, my be- guess is he's taken those kinds of precautions. That's I think that is the kind of chess player, as you put it, that Mueller is. Let me just ask you before we let you go, Congressman, one just political question. You're a fairly progressive Democrat in a red conservative southern state and uh, these midterm elections are continuing you've got a runoff uh, coming up on Tuesday in Mississippi which borders Tennessee if my geography is is right that's between uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith and Mike Espy the Democrat do you think Espy has a chance it's a slim chance it all depends on turnout there's there there are certain more Republicans than Democrats and Trump's going to come down there I think on Monday and campaign for Smith and God knows Mississippi is, you know, Nina Simone, Mississippi, goddamn. And, and, and there's a reason she said it, and there's still a lot of them down there. All right. Well, okay. we got a we got a Steve Winwood and a Nina Simone uh, uh, illusion in this skullduggery. And we so. can't not stop without Warren Zevon. How was I to know that they were with the Russians too? <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, I want I want to hear you sing that when you uh, chair the uh, Constitution Subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee next uh, in January. I'd be happy to, but to take one with me everywhere. He was my pal. Thanks so much, Congressman. You're welcome. So I heard a few headlines uh, out of that. Yeah, I think so. Steve Cohen is always an interesting kind of colorful character. First, to hear him talking about Nancy Pelosi and whether she becomes Speaker of the House again. He's clearly uh, a very passionate supporter of hers. But it was interesting to hear him say that if she does not win the speakership, that it will be, as he put it, chaos in the House. That might be hyperbole. But on the other hand, the rebels among the Democrats don't really seem to have a plan B. So uh, that actually might be a fair point. And I know he said some other things that that are interesting, too. Yeah, yeah. Most striking to me is he's sounded like he's actually backing away from his impeachment resolution. Um, He's saying he's not going to reintroduce it when the new Congress convenes. He wants to hold hearings first. He wants to wait for the Mueller report, very much in line of where Pelosi and Jerry Nadler, the incoming chairman of House Judiciary, are. And that's not going to go down. I would suspect, with some of the uh, hardcore progressives in the Democratic base who, uh, fueled by Tom Steyer's money and rhetoric, have been uh, talking about impeachment for some time. But, you know, but it's uh, probably look, it's probably the smart strategy. I mean, they have zero right. chance of maybe they impeach him in the House. But as we said all along on this podcast, they have zero chance and le- even less of a chance now with the midterm elections right. of convicting him in the Senate, convicting him in the Senate. But I thought it was interesting, like how he explained it, which is that you know he said, "Look, when you're in the minority, all you really have is message." Um, right. And and you know now that they're in the majority, there's actually things they can do, and they have to kind of govern responsibly and think strategically. Yeah. And I think that's what he's doing, and he's being but- an adult. And you asked the question, was this? Nadler and Pelosi, you know, kind of, you know, herding cats, keeping their troops in line. Maybe there's some of that as well. Yeah, the responsibility of power. One other uh, little headline in there, I noticed he he talked about how Sherrod Brown would make a good president. And, uh, you know, you're hearing more and more talk along those lines. If for no other reason, like uh, there's no path 
for Donald Trump's reelection if he can't take Ohio and you got an Ohio Democratic senator just reelected who seems to be taking seriously the idea of running for president. Jared Brown has won 10 straight elections in Ohio. Ohio is, you know, was the iconic swing state, which has been but now is trending red again, if not deep red. Sherrod Brown has a populist Right. pro-working-class message in that state. I think he he's not the most charismatic person in the world, but I think he's someone that uh, people should keep their eye on. Well, I like anybody in, in public life who's rumpled. So uh, <laughs> uh, he's, he's, he's got my interest right there. He's got the rumpled uh, vote. Okay, I'm yeah, really yeah. excited about our next guest, so let's get on to that. Okay, joining us now on Skullduggery is Elise Jordan, who has a, a really interesting career. A lot of done a lot of things that are, I think, relevant to the news that's going on right now and relevant to this podcast. You are currently Elise, a uh, analyst for MSNBC and NBC, but you're a former State Department official in the Bush administration. You have been in politics, advising uh, presidential campaigns, including Rand Paul's. Most importantly, you are the co-host of the hot new political podcast, <laughs> Words Matter, uh, with Steve Schmidt. So uh, congrats on that, and welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with politics, because you're also a native of Mississippi. The midterms just don't seem to be ending, and there is one final Senate race that uh, is still still hangs in the balance, which is in Mississippi, and that is the Republican uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith and the Democrat Mike Espy are in a runoff election because neither got to the 50% threshold that'll take place on Tuesday. Mississippi is a deep red state. I don't think there's been a Democrat who's uh, won Senate seat or, or even statewide in, in decades. So, but it is surprisingly close. So tell us a little bit about what's going on in that race, what the dynamics are, and whether you think uh, Espy has any chance at all. So Cindy Hyde-Smith was a former state cultural commissioner who really kind of came out of obscurity to be nominated by Governor Phil Bryant of Mississippi to assume Thad Cochran's Senate seat. And, you know, this was talking to sources around the governor. This was a, you know, a decision that he really agonized over because in Mississippi, our senators usually stay for a long, long time. And it's a pretty big deal. We are not, um, you know, the Thad Cochran and Trent Lott were real powerhouses who were there for decades. And so she would be, if she wins her election, she would be the first woman elected to the Senate from Mississippi. Now, Mike Espy the Democratic candidate and the former Secretary of Agriculture, he would be the first African-American elected to the Senate from Mississippi since Hiram Revels was appointed back in the Reconstruction era. So this, I, you know, it's a race of first, but it has taken a really nasty racial tone in just the past week or two when this recording of Cindy Hyde-Smith on the campaign trail prior to the election, to the first special election, it came out and she was saying that, you know, speaking of who was introducing her at a rally at an event in Tupelo, she said that she would attend a public hanging if this person asked her to. And 
she dismissed that as a joke. Her campaign, uh, you know, said that everyone was making too much of it. But it really showed a profound ignorance of the history of Mississippi, where more lynchings occurred than anywhere else in the country. To be precise, Elise, 581 lynchings between 1882 and 1968 in the state of Mississippi. So 1968, which is to say there are people who would be voting in this election who would remember, they remember uh, the, the exactly. last lynchings in, that, in, in the state of Mississippi. Exactly. So uh, that comment was made. They tried to, their response was terrible. Instead of just apologizing, they dug in. And then, lo and behold, another recording comes out taken the same day, and she's joking about voter suppression. And it kind of uh, demonstrates that these two comments were captured on one day, can you imagine if the Democratic Party had actually dedicated any resources to tracking the Republican candidate for Senate in Mississippi? They, um, you know, the National Party just kind of dismisses the race because it has been a Republican stronghold for so long. But, you know, you look at Romney, Mitt Romney, he beat Barack Obama by only about 11 percent in 2012. And Mississippi would actually be more realistic for Democrats than Alabama, where Democrats just managed to take the seat, uh, to take Jeff Sessions' seat with Doug Jones. And that's partly because, or maybe largely because, there is a really sizable African-American vote in Mississippi, right? I mean, it's... uh, Right. There's, um, you know, Mississippi has a 37 percent African-American population, and Alabama is only around 25, 26 percent. So actually, if Mike Espy can turn out the African-American vote, that should be pretty galvanized by Cindy Hyde-Smith's comments. And if he could turn some white voters who want to see Mississippi going forward and not looking backwards into the most horrible parts of our history, you know, he has a chance. But this has just all, you know, taken a new turn over the last two weeks. So well, why hasn't we'll see she, if it actually... Why hasn't she apologized? Is she kind of following Trump's lead? You can't apologize for these things? Or is she afraid of alienating white voters? I mean, wh- why not just apologize? And maybe she will, by the way, as we record this podcast later this evening, they're going to have their one and only debate of this Which special is, can election. Which I also point or, out, yeah. it, it'll be the first Senate debate in about 10 years And how pathetic is that, that the men and women of Mississippi don't get to see the men and women who want to represent them in Congress actually discuss their ideas on the debate stage? There has not been a Senate debate in 10 years in Mississippi? Yes. And, you know, Senator Roger Wicker, he declined to debate his Democratic opponent, David Baria. And in the primary, Cindy Hyde-Smith, in the special election when there were three candidates, Cindy Hyde-Smith declined a debate when Chris McDaniel was still in the field. When you say SB has a chance, how much? What, you know, what would you uh, rate it right now? It, it would, uh, you know, it would take a lot of depressed Republican turnout and a very optimistic view of how Mississippians uh view history and moving past that history to think that Cindy Hyde-Smith would be punished 
at the ballot box. But you look at what happened in Alabama, and I'm not going to discount it. I did see Hyde Smith when she was being questioned the next day about it, and she just kept robotically saying, I've said all I'm going to say about this. And she just struck me as incredibly flat-footed as a politician. Well, she hasn't, Mike, she hasn't been in national politics and on the scene for long at all. You know, really since, you know, for about six months, she was thrust from Mississippi to going to Washington and serving in the Senate. And it's a big, it's a really big transition. And this also was a sleeper race that everyone assumed that she just had in the bag, as long as she didn't make any unforced errors. And what did she do? She made some pretty huge unforced errors on the campaign trail. I would like to ask you a little about your own evolution as uh, you were, you started out as a you know, hardcore Republican from Mississippi, now uh, turned into something quite different. We had George Conway on last week who talked about his own personal evolution from weeping with joy at Donald Trump's election in, uh, uh, two years ago to becoming you know, perhaps the most stinging re- Trump administration critic on the right. Tell us like what changed you? Was it Donald Trump? Were there other factors that led into this? And if it was Trump, what about Trump caused you to um, move from where you were to where you are now? I've always had a very strong libertarian bent. And that particular strain of Republican philosophy and political philosophy, for me, came into stronger view after spending some time in Iraq and Afghanistan and seeing the disconnect from what the you know neoconservative wing of the Republican Party foreign policy establishment was saying was happening on the ground and how our policies were actually playing out. And so I became interested in promoting within the policy a more realistic foreign policy, which was why I ended up working for Senator Rand Paul. With Donald Trump, there was just never any question at all if I was going to support him. He is completely unqualified. He is completely repulsive in his comments about women and minorities in this country. Uh, That's something that I just never would tolerate as someone who believes in equality for all as our most important foundational principle and the bedrock of our free society. So it just was really never a question for me. Sounds like your dog agrees with you. (laughs) He is. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. (laughs) So you were talking, Elise, about how, uh, you know, that kind of political philosophy drew you to Rand Paul, also uh, his views on foreign policy. Since he ran for president and since Donald Trump was elected, he's become one of, I mean, some people would call him Donald Trump's one of his biggest apologists um, in the Senate, but certainly a uh, a pretty ardent defender of his when, um, you know, he was always known as someone who, you know, would, you know, sticking to his own principles would criticize even, you know, presidents from, from their own party. Um, what do you make of that, His how his kind of uh, attitude has, has, seems to have changed somewhat? I think you should look at his voting pattern. And Senator Rand Paul has voted with Donald Trump less frequently than any other Republican senator. So I still would say that his, you know, willingness to buck the party, to buck Donald Trump is always there. You know, when he agrees with Donald Trump, he is going to support Donald Trump. And when he doesn't, uh, he's going to make his voice loud and clear, just as he's doing right now about 
Saudi Arabia and their uh, their guilt in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Let me ask you about that. We have the, the CIA assessment that uh, the uh, murder of Khashoggi, the uh, Saudi dissident journalist and the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, was almost certainly ordered by uh, MBS, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. But the State Department quickly rushed in and said this is not the formal decision of the U.S. government at this point. And it seems to be an open question about how far we are going to go punishing the Saudis and distancing ourselves from them with in this administration. Um, give us your thoughts. And you were you were a speechwriter for Condi Rice when she was Secretary of State during a time that the Bush administration in its second term was trying to promote a pro-democracy human rights agenda. How would Condi Rice have reacted to the news about uh, the Saudi murder of Khashoggi, and how do you think that uh, this administration ought to respond? Well, you point out something that really is a common characteristic of Donald Trump and the execution of his foreign policy. The bureaucracy might say one thing, the CIA, the State Department, the Treasury Department, the Defense Department, but then, the commander-in-chief at the top of the food chain undercut uh, you know, their assessments. I'm not going to speculate how the Bush administration would have handled this because you know, I think that in retrospect, they were way too kind in their posture towards Saudi Arabia. I think that this has been a, long, uh, a long-standing mistake, the bipartisan consensus, you know, the Clinton administration the same problems. Uh, and I think that it's just time, the time has arrived that we do need to finally address the problem of Saudi Arabia from a realistic lens. You know, Donald Trump has been just as much out there in defense of the Saudis as they have been themselves in just the ludicrous cover-up of this murder. And Donald Trump wants to believe that it can just be business as usual, but he's signaling incredible weakness. And if anything, what I'm happy that this moment has brought about, that this horrible tragedy has turned the world's attention and the attention of the American people to the depravity that's being committed in their name by aiding and abetting Saudi Arabia and Yemen. You know, we basically just give them billions of dollars worth of defense systems so that they can create the world's greatest famine. And it is way overdue for this corrupt and immoral foreign policy to stop. Elise, I want to talk to you about something that's kind of been bubbling up uh, over the last few weeks, uh, which is Trump's relationship with the U.S. military, which seems to have gotten a little bit testy and difficult. And, you know, we're not we're used to Trump going after our most cherished institutions, but the military has always kind of been sacrosanct. And yet in the past few weeks, you know, he sent 5000 troops to the border, which was controversial. He opted not to go to a cemetery in World War One cemetery in France because of bad weather. He didn't go to Arlington on uh, Veterans Day, and now he's uh, attacked General Admiral McRaven about a bin, the bin Laden operation. We should have gotten him sooner. 
this does not seem to be smart politics on, on his behalf. Do you think he's going to pay a price for this? Absolutely. Donald Trump will pay no price because this is his M.O. This is how he always operates. When he is attacked, it doesn't matter who's attacking him. It doesn't matter if it's a pregnant widow of a soldier that he sent to the battlefield. It doesn't matter if it's grieving parents of a fallen soldier. Donald Trump is going to attack anyone who criticizes him. And if you are with Donald Trump, you have to accept that and not flinch. And it's part of his cult of personality, and it's way more than the Republican Party being a, you know, having a free market and free ideology. It's about Donald Trump. And if you are going to stick with him at all costs. So do you think this is like another one of these traps that the, that, uh, the media falls into, uh, like Lucy in the football? You know, you, we still judge him by what the sort of traditional norms are, even though we absolutely shouldn't? Well, Donald Trump is so particularly repulsive in the way he treats fellow human beings and his nastiness is so profound and provocative and shocking when he is targeting the most vulnerable among us that I think it's a good thing that it still takes our breath away. It should. We shouldn't become immune to the horrible cruelty that embodies his president, you know, first and foremost above any other character trait. And yet so few of your fellow Republicans are willing to speak out and denounce the kind of conduct you've just described. Why is that? And do you see any possibility of change on the horizon within the Republican Party? I've never seen anything like it. The cowering fear that Republicans have of Donald Trump, of being targeted themselves by him, of being bullied by him, of what they are willing to accept, of the incredible acrobatics they will do to deny the obvious. It is simply breathtaking. And no, I don't see it changing because Donald Trump held his strength in the areas where his political supporters want to hold their strength too. And I think that we're just going to witness a greater political segregation of the country along gender, class, you know, and racial lines. And it's, it's profoundly disturbing. And you hope that there's going to be that moment where Republicans step up and say, enough is enough. But given all that Donald Trump has said and all of the people whom he has insulted, I really am not optimistic that that time is going to come anytime how, soon. And I how, would just, dis- how disappointed are you in your former boss, Rand Paul? I am not. I would say that when he wants to take Trump to task, he takes him to task. And when he is trying to work with him to get him to end the war in Afghanistan, he is adopting a diplomatic posture that allows him to get something done with him. So, you know, there were plenty of nasty things said on the campaign trail that I personally could not overcome. And it's been amazing to watch all of the politicians who don't seem to mind. And I guess Donald Trump gets over it too, but it, um, you know, it really is something to watch this play out. And everyone is just trying to ignore the elephant in the room that this is really destructive in the long term 
to our democracy. But Elise, so in the run-up to the midterms, you did a series of focus groups. You traveled around the country, you met with a lot of voters, and maybe part of the explanation for why Republicans aren't standing up to Trump is that Donald Trump still has a huge amount of Republican support out there, his base, and, and to some extent beyond his base. So what were your takeaways from some of those focus groups you did, by the way, with a guy named Lord Ashcroft? Who is Lord Ashcroft? He, Lord Ashcroft is a fascinating character. He is a former member of the House of Lords, a deputy chair of the Conservative Party in the UK, a former deputy chair. And he is fascinated with political research and, and conducts a ton of it. And I've been really lucky to work on the Ashcroft in America Research Project. And we have gone all over the country and probably are at over 60 focus groups with Americans from all socioeconomic backgrounds and demographics. Just get to hear from the voters, which is so enlightening and so necessary in this moment when sometimes we are used to sophisticated analysis, but we should actually be listening to the voters and what the voters Okay, so did you see any like real cracks in Donald Trump's support from his kind of core base? Anything at all? I did not see diminished support among Donald Trump's base. And what surprised me this last research trip were the independents because we had some voters we categorized as hold-your-nose Trump voters, and they might be independents or they might be Republicans who voted very reluctantly for Donald Trump in 2016. And I wanted to see how much of a change there was in their attitudes towards Donald Trump. And if you were a hold-your-nose or an independent who crossed over, you're happy with Donald Trump. He, You expected it to be much worse than what has actually happened because you had such low expectations he's actually performed well and you're happy that the economy is doing well and that there isn't more uh, obvious chaos and that was something that surprised me hearing from independents who i thought as someone who observes the chaos day in and day out that that possibly would have some impact but as long as the economy is strong Trump supporters are sticking with him. I think that's the key thing. I, I did when I, I listened to some of those, I don't know if it was a podcast that you guys did, but some of those recordings where you interviewed voters um, in those focus groups. And I just struck by the extent to which independents and, and members of, of his base separate his conduct and rhetoric, which frankly re- repulses even some of some of those people from the policies and kind of how the country is doing in the economy. And so uh, that I'm sure has a lot to do with why he... Uh, well, you are hitting on exactly the main point that I think for opponents of Donald Trump that is so easy to miss, that for Donald Trump supporters, they know he is not a moral human being and someone that they would want to have over for dinner. They fully accept that they may not like him or admire him as a person, but as long as they like the policies... They're going to stick with him because they knew that they didn't admire him as a person to begin with. So until Democrats offer something for those voters to come over and they have some kind of message that can win back the Obama Trump voters, then it's going to be the same. It's going to be the same problem for Democrats heading into 2020. Let's say things do go uh, south for Trump, uh, at least whether it's uh, a Mueller report or some other you know, bombshell on the horizon. Who 
in the Republican Party ranks, if anybody, uh, would be prepared to show the cojones to uh, to take him on uh, in in 2020. Uh, would Rand Paul ever do it? Would Mitt Romney step up to the plate? Is there anybody in the Republican ranks you see who might be willing to step forward? Or maybe John Kasich. Or John Kasich, sure. This is an interesting question because if I were going to point to the second most disturbing trend for Donald Trump, I would say that it is the amount of support among his own voters, among his base, among independents for a primary challenger in 2020. We started out this last focus group tour in New Hampshire, and we heard there from New Hampshire Republican voters oh, yeah, we'd be open to a primary challenger, Donald Trump. We like him, but we still think we could do better and we deserve better than this. And we thought, oh, perhaps it's just New Hampshire. They're professionals. They get to pick and choose way more than any other state, perhaps in Iowa. Then we went to New Jersey. We heard a similar thing from Trump supporters. Then Minnesota, then Iowa. And literally in every state we went to among Trump supporters, we observed that there is an openness to a primary challenge that normally is never there with a party incumbent. So who would it be? I would not predict at this point anyone who could take Donald Trump on, and my predictions end up being wrong. So... uh... Last question. Um, so there's this little kerfuffle uh, among politicos and uh, members of the Fourth Estate. The White House Correspondents Association, uh, led by our former beloved colleague uh, Olivier Knox, has decided that they will no longer, or, or at least for the, this White House Correspondents Center, they were not going to have a comedian who would skewer uh, the president as they have traditionally had, and said they're going to have Ron Chernow, the well-respected uh, pres- historian and presidential uh, biographer, Uh, author of the Alexander Hamilton biography that the great musical Hamilton is based on. Do you think that was a good decision? I'm a huge fan of Ron Chernow, and I think it's so long overdue that this farce continues where, you know, the press corps, the president, I think that this is a step in the right direction for at least a very respected historian who has studied the character of so many of our great presidents in such detail that he imparts some of his wisdom at a moment when you know freedom of the press is under attack. So I fully support this. And I'm, I'm actually, quite frankly, much more enthusiastic about attending because Ron is speaking. <laughs> jump, jump in very briefly. I've been reading his uh, Grant biography, which is awesome, but especially his account of Reconstruction, which is a real eye-opener. Uh, as somebody from Mississippi, I would uh, recommend uh, you take a look at it. Well, you know, Grant, his, civil, his headquarters when he was planning the raid on Vicksburg was in my town, Holly Springs, and so he and his wife, Julia Dent, lived in one of the big Annabella mansions, and then he had his uh, war headquarters in another one, and so that was one of the reasons that a lot of the Annabella homes are still standing in our hometown, because Grant had his headquarters there, and the town wasn't burned. And of course, Grant wrote what's uh, considered to be 
the best presidential autobiography and memoir. And the question is whether uh, Barack Obama will be able to match him. So uh, we'll, we'll find out, I guess, next year. I don't think there's any likelihood that I... Donald Trump will uh, no, rise no, to those heights. No, I don't think so. You know, I don't you think know so. Barack Obama is quite a talented writer, so I am excited for that book to come out. Well, okay. Well, that brings a close to this literary and historical edition of Skullduggery. We were so delighted to have Elise Jordan on. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks to Congressman Steve Cohen and Elise Jordan for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. And be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. We'll talk to you next week.